Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. A scripture again reads as follows. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your gospel message this morning. The good news of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, this morning that I would decrease and that you would increase. I pray that your people would be edified this morning, would be um, see you afresh through the lens of your word and by your spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. I want to start out by asking a question. What are we to do with our stories of grace, or as some would call them, our testimonials? Horatio Spafford, a successful businessman in Chicago in the 1800s, was planning a trip to Europe with his family. He ended up staying behind on business, so only his daughters, his four daughters and his wife ended up going on the trip. While on the journey, the ship ended up hitting a vessel and quickly sank. Only his wife survived. On his journey to meet his wife, Anna, in Europe, it was pointed out to him that the ship was nearing the place where his daughters drowned. It was at that point where he penned the hymn we know today as, It Is Well With My Soul. Charles Haddon Spurgeon recounts his conversion in his own writings. Bear with me as I go through it with you. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair even now had it not been for the goodness of God and sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came into a little primitive Methodist chapel. The minister did not attend that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort went into the pulpit to preach. The text was found in Isaiah 45:22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text. It says, look. 
Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It's not lifting your finger. It's just look. A man does not need to go to college to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A child can look, but this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. There's no use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend and I am seated at the Father's right hand. Look to me. Look to me. Then he said, young man, you look very miserable. And he continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in this life and miserable in, this, in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Then and there, the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Aren't these stories wonderful? The Apostle Paul recounts his conversion twice and touches on it briefly in our text this morning. Again, what do we do with our stories of grace? I think what God wants us to do with our stories is to see them ultimately as his story. I love these types of stories where we see various ways that God saves different people. As good and as powerful as those stories may be, we have to be careful that we don't substitute those stories in place of the gospel and make them normative for others. I would contend that we should look at these stories as supporting evidence, if you will. The focus is not on the sins that we've been saved from individually, but our focus ought to be on our Savior. Every conversion, spiritually, seeking, spiritually speaking, is utterly radical. The Bible uses vivid language to portray this. We have paths from death to life. We have been born again. We are a new creation. But in the temporal sense, not every conversion, not everyone is saved through a radical Damascus Road experience like the Apostle Paul. There are people who don't remember a day where they did not know the Lord. There are also people whose stories would never make a best-selling book, but yet all of our stories are his stories from his grace. What do we see in the story concerning the Apostle Paul? To put it in our modern vernacular, the Apostle Paul was sold out. Or as some would put it, he was on fire for God. Or was he? 
it might seem that he was on fire for God, but what he was really on fire for was his tradition. Let me tell you something. There are many powerful forces in the world, but very few of them hold a candle to the traditions that we hold. I was taught as far back as I can remember to eat my food with a fork. And as far back as I can remember, I ate my food with a fork. Then I met my wife. One day early on in our marriage, I was in the kitchen, if I recall correctly, and from a distance, I was stunned. I observed my wife eating her rice with a spoon. I thought to myself, clearly, nobody in their right mind would eat their rice with a spoon, would they? So probably with a look of disgust on my face, I asked the question, why are you eating your rice with a spoon? To which she, she replies something to the effect of, it's more practical, the rice doesn't fall off as easily. As true as that is, I didn't want to hear it because my tradition was blinding me. Thankfully, not even our tradition can stop the grace of God as we see with the Apostle Paul. If you ever want to test to see if your traditions have become idols, ask yourself this question. Do I get angry or am I offended if my tradition is not upheld? There are many traditions that are good and in keeping with scripture, and we ought to, re we ought to respond appropriately to the violations of such. However, how many of us would be aghast if we come to church and find someone sitting in our unofficial assigned seat? How many of us would respond to someone who doesn't necessarily fit the mold of who we would normally see in church? Tradition is even ingrained in our children. If you give them ice cream for two days in a row after dinner, by the third day, if they don't see that ice cream coming, they'll be banging their utensils on the table, fighting for their ice cream rights. It is so easy to turn our traditions into the law of God and become very zealous for them. Christian zeal is one of those things that is wonderful to see and experience. However, in one of those, is, excuse me, in one of those things that is very um, wonderful to behold and experience, but it can also lead to a trail of tears if we're not careful. In our sinful condition, zeal can sadly be a two-way street. And I can't think of a better example than the Apostle Peter. In one minute, his mouth is causing him to speak out boldly at Pentecost. In another minute, his mouth causes Jesus to say to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Most, if not all of us, have a zeal for something, even if it may not seem that way on the surface. Have you ever seen a, sh a shy teenager, for example? Maybe you know one, maybe you live with one, maybe you were once one yourself. They hardly say anything. 
If you ask them a question, they give you a one-word answer. They seem indifferent to just about everything under the sun. Maybe you as a parent find like that getting him to talk is like pulling teeth. Do you know why that is? Very often, it is because what he is zealous for is simply not being discussed. That same teenager, if you were to bring up something that piqued his interest, would discuss that subject with knowledge, fervor, and enthusiasm. And I would go so far as to say that applies to adults, too. In our heart of hearts, we are all zealous for something because zeal is something that we possess because we are made in the image of God. There is something that brings out our passion and our enthusiasm, and it is good to be zealous so long as it is for the right reasons. I'm not as much of a sports enthusiast as I used to be. However, I still watch basketball, and I'll still watch football and the Super Bowl. A few years ago, when I first started to attend Glendale on a regular basis, the time of the Super Bowl came around. At my previous church, we only had worship in the morning, so I wasn't so accustomed to attending worship in the evening. You know, a thought came to my mind. Is he going to cancel evening worship? The reason that thought came to mind is because my zeal was misplaced. I wanted to experience the excitement and pleasure that came with watching the Super Bowl more than I wanted to experiencing worshiping with God's people. My intention is not to make you feel guilty about watching football on Sunday. I just want you to be on guard and pay attention to where your zeal lies. I have three points from our passage this morning. Point number one the power of divine revelation. Point number two, chosen by God. Point number three, called to the Gentiles. Point number one, the power of divine revelation. Those who know me well, I don't think would ever consider me to be any type of a ladies' man in in the sense of being outgoing towards women. But something happened, though, when I met Daphne. I hope I'm not embarrassing her talking about her so much. Um, All of the timidity went out the window. And for some reason, I felt a strong compulsion and emboldenment to pursue her. I made every excuse I could to be around her at the conference we met. And if I'm being honest, it was bordering on stalking. There was something that really came over me that I never felt before. The question I want you to consider is this. What was the cause of that compulsion? Some might say it was something along this line. My mind and my heart came together and determined that she was the one or my soulmate. Others might say that God gave me an unction by his spirit to pursue her. How about this? Is it possible that God gave me a revelation like he did the Apostle Paul in this passage to pursue Daphne 
who I am now married to. I think these thoughts and ideas are considerations that Christians wrestle with on a regular basis. Here is what I would say. My personal experience with pursuing my wife does not fall under the category of divine revelation. It falls under the category of Christian freedom. Here is the difference. I felt compelled to pursue her. However, it doesn't mean that I would have been sinning if I didn't. If what I was experiencing was a direct revelation from God, not only would I be required to pursue her, I would be sinning if I did anything contrary because I would be disobeying a direct command from God. It is crucial that we understand these distinctions. I've seen many brothers and sisters struggling and hurting because they really think that every decision on where to live and what vocational path to choose has to be revealed to them directly from God, and that is simply not the case. I don't want to oversimplify these decisions either. We still need to be prayerful and thoughtful about them. Maybe we even need to seek additional counsel, but we should never elevate our personal experiences to the level of the word of God. I am concerned that people really don't understand what it means to say that God told me such and such. I hear people throwing that phrase around, but I really don't think they fully understand what it means to hear from God. It is important that we recognize that when we say we are hearing from God, what we are actually saying is, thus says the Lord. Moreover, it would logically follow that if it is coming directly from God, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it, right? Nobody can challenge it because, after all, it came directly from God. But what if someone says, God told me in a dream last night that, I should, that I'm married to the wrong person and I should marry my secretary? What if someone says, God told me directly this morning that I should leave my family to pursue my dreams? There are many serial killers who claim that God told them to do what they did. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, claimed that he heard from God, and there are many other religions founded on the same claim. Beloved, anyone can claim that God told them to do something. However, if the 66 books of the Bible are indeed the completed word of God to us, then any subsequent claims of revelation must pass the test of the fire of scripture. Even though we know that what every, even though we know that Paul received revelation directly from the son, what do we still see happening? We find Paul in his writings is using Old Testament references to provide positive arguments for the gospel and to defend it. We also find various disputes with Christians and non-Christians about his truth claims because he doesn't, he doesn't just get to say that he heard from God and go about his business. No. He has to give 
a defense. I want to take a closer look at this revelation that Paul alludes to in our text in greater detail. Please turn to Acts 26 if you have your Bibles. Um, We'll see the revelation that Paul is referencing in our passage. And we'll start in verse 12. Acts Acts 26, beginning in verse 12. While so enraged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Here we see aspects of what divine revelation looks like. The Son of God communicated directly to Paul in an audible voice and gave him constructions concerning some things he specifically called him to do. He called Paul to go to the Gentiles. I've used this term before, but this was God's decretive will for Paul And we know this because Paul did precisely what God commanded him to do. In the book of Jonah, similar to Paul, God called Jonah to go somewhere. He told Jonah to go to Nineveh. But what did Jonah do? He went to the beach instead. We know that was God's prescriptive will in that instance because he disobeyed his command and, this is key, God allowed him to do so. So if you ever feel like you are hearing from God, I want to encourage you to consider at least four things. Number one, does what I think I'm hearing from God contradict anything that God would have me do or not do in his word, principally or otherwise? Number two, remember that you are a sinner and that it is possible that you are hearing something that is coming from your own mind. Number three, consult with a mature and trusted brother or sister in Christ concerning the matter. Number four, go to your fridge and check the expiration date on the milk you drank last night, lest you confuse hearing from God with indigestion. In all seriousness, we have to be careful about making the claim that God has spoken to us directly. 
err on the side of caution in this area, and don't let anyone tell you that you have to hear from God audibly to be a Christian or that God has to be telling you what to do for every decision that you make. If you want to claim you heard from God, I'm fine with that. However, if at the same time you say, I can't question you, then as, where, as they say where I'm from, you suspect. He has given us a sure word of faith which contains all we need to know for life and godliness. If you want to know with 100% certainty whether or not you are hearing from God, I would encourage you to look in his word. Point number two, chosen by God. Beloved, did you know that like the Apostle Paul's conversion, that your conversion was part of God's decree? Look with me at verse 15 and 16 in our passage. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. In the preceding verses is where he mentions his conversion. Here is what I want you to do. And let me hasten to add that read the label on the box that this is for illustration purposes only. Take your story and replace it with Paul's story and then read verse 15 and the beginning of 16. Why am I asking you to do that? Because no matter the story, the fundamental fundamental reason why anyone comes to saving faith is because God set you apart before you were born to call you by his grace in time. You, beloved, were chosen by God. Before time began, before he formed you in the womb, he knew you. Here is another consideration. Why? Have you ever considered why God chose you? Have you ever taken the time to really reflect on this? Do you know why God chose you? One of the reasons is the simple fact that he took pleasure in doing so. That's right, you with all of your baggage. When God the Father looks at you in Christ, he sees beauty. No matter what anyone else has to say, you are beautiful to him. You don't have to put on any makeup in his presence, and you don't have to wear your best suit. He wants you because he chose you. You are precious to him because he chose you before the foundation of the world. Sadly, at times, our posture really says to God, why wouldn't you choose me? Look at my good works. Look at all I've done for you. How could you not choose me? A statement that Pastor Jones made uh, several weeks ago has really become a healthy ringing in my ears on many occasions. Don't count your blessings one by one. Count your sins one by one. Beloved, I would contend that it is through this paradigm that we must live our lives as Christians. When we count our sins one by one in light of his grace, It should cause us to say, Lord, of all people, 
why would you choose me? When it comes to God being sovereign over our salvation, maybe you are thinking to yourself, how can this be? What about free will? Instead of going to the Gentiles, could Paul have said to God, well, God, you know, as much as I would like to, the go, to go to the Gentiles, I really can't fit it into my schedule. Let me look at my calendar here. Ah, here we go. Check back with me in about three months. Would God then say, well, I gave it a good try, but it didn't work out. Let me see if I could find someone who could fit my will into their lives. Here is what we know about free will. In the garden, God told our federal head, Adam, you can eat of every tree except for this one banana tree. Let me add parenthetically that since our pastor is our earthly shepherd, if he says it was a banana tree, it was a banana tree. In that context, Adam had the ability to disobey God or to obey him. And we all know what happened. Because of his disobedience, our will is now sinful, or to put it a better way, our will is in bondage to sin. The Bible never describes man's will as free in an autonomous sense. When God's will meets man's will, I don't need to tell you who wins. One of the clearest passages I know of in the Bible concerning this issue is found in the book of Genesis, chapter 50. We'll be turning there in a minute. Many of you are familiar with the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers are jealous of him. He gets a coat of many colors. Joseph tells his brothers that God revealed to him in a dream that they would be his servants. So his brothers, instead of rejoicing in God's revelation, throw their brothers into a ditch and sell him into slavery and don't act like you wouldn't have done the same thing if your brother told you that. Joseph ends up in Egypt and becomes prime minister, second in command to Pharaoh. A very harsh famine eventually ensues, but because God revealed the famine to Joseph, they were able to feed people all around the world, including Joseph's family. Joseph, after many years, re-encounters re his brothers again. He reunites with his brothers and his father not, not too long before he dies. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 50. I want to read with you now um, the end of, uh, towards the end of that story and keep Joseph's story in mind as we read. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And here's the key text. 
As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Do you see the suffering Joseph endured? He was also accused of attempted rape earlier on in his story. He was falsely imprisoned and, as you know, mistreated by his brothers. Beloved, what is God doing in all of this? What is God doing with all of the different stories and walks of life in this congregation? What is God doing, doing with our suffering? And in the case of Paul in our passage, what is he doing even with our sin? He is working them all for our good. We don't have to fully understand how God's will works or fully understand how man's will works. God has revealed to us all that we need to know in this life. Philosophers will philosophize themselves into a stupor over this subject, but I like how Calvin put it, and it is something to this effect. Where God stops speaking on a matter, that is where we ought to stop speaking on a matter. Briefly, point number three, call to the Gentiles. I am so thankful that God sent Paul to the, apostles, to the Gentiles, and you ought to be too. Because unless someone here is of Jewish descent, we are all Gentiles. We zoomed out a bit in order to see what was really going on in the story of Joseph. I think if we zoom out some more, we see how we fit into the meta-narrative of Scripture. The Apostle Paul incidentally found himself in Rome. By chance, in his missionary journeys, he traveled all around Europe. We fast forward and find by sheer happenstance, there were people who fled Europe under religious persecution. Luckily, they migrated to a land we find ourselves in now. Coincidentally, there was eventually a ratification of the Constitution and the formulation of the United States, one of those states eventually being Florida. Fast forward and we find, our, and we find that through a fortune cookie, it was revealed to Pastor Jones that he would be pastor of Glendale Missionary Baptist Church. I made a wish on my birthday that I would one day be in ministry. A psychic told me that I would ask a friend for church recommendations concerning a visit to Miami. My friend checked his crystal ball and it revealed three churches. I had to choose between the three, so I read some tea leaves. And I selected Glendale. Beloved, there are thousands upon thousands of individual decisions and circumstances over a span of many years that went into you being in this church. And not a single one of them were accidental, by chance, or by any wicked omens. God in his sovereignty 
orchestrated the events of your life to have you right here, right now. And no matter what your experiences have been, he has been working all of them, every one of them, for your good. The Apostle Paul received the revelation from God, carried that message to many places, starting with the Gentiles. That message eventually reached you. God had you in mind when he knocked Paul off of that donkey. God had you in mind through all of the sufferings and death experienced by the Apostle Paul and those who followed after them to carry the gospel message around the world. But most importantly, God had you in mind in the death of his son. In eternity past, God chose you in the son. And nothing, I mean nothing, could get in the way of that. Not you, not the world, not even Satan. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for...